It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled. I tell my story there about life after alcohol since 2011. Started on my very first day of sobriety. I started writing about it. And I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. Well, early sobriety is a tender time. The revelations come constantly as life is experienced without booze goggles for the first time in a long time, and every week seems to present us with a sober first. I'm very grateful for today's guest's willingness to share her experience during this precious period of her recovery. Now, some of our listeners are contemplating life without alcohol, and some of you are just beginning your experiences of giving up drugs and or alcohol and some of you are really hitting your stride or have been in recovery for a long time but wherever you're at I know that you're going to connect with our guest today her name is Sarah and she is so kind to share with us today and reflect on her early sobriety and Sarah has some extra insight because she's a mental health professional and so she's got some extra layers of complication and some extra insight as to what's going on so we're sure to have a great chat today Sarah welcome to the bubble hour Thank you, Jean. It's so wonderful to be here. Well, I really appreciate you being here because this is a time of, uh, you know, a lot of us just are like hunkering down and muscling through the difficulties and just aren't ready to talk about it yet. And I often have people write to me and say, you need more people in early recovery. So I was so happy when you connected and, and offered to to um, be on the show when you're about three months now. Is that right? Three months over? That's right. Yep. Yeah, I can't even so believe it. I mean, it seems so long. Um, when I when I first when I first made this last attempt, it seemed, three months has seemed so far away. But now we're here, and and it's it's pretty great. Um, I know it's early, but I, there was a time I didn't think I could I could get this far. So absolutely. Yeah, nice I mean, we, we call it. it early recovery, but it's no small feat. That's for sure. Right. Because right. Every day is a miracle. And um, it doesn't matter how far into it you are, but it's really tough at first. It's really tough. And I know that three months seems impossible when you are just trying to get through the first day or two. So yes. I'm really happy for you. But let's start by getting to know you. Tell us a bit about yourself and about your experiences before and after this pivotal moment in your relationship with alcohol. Yeah, um, well, I am 37. I uh, have been a therapist uh, and I'm a professor of counseling students um, now for several years. And 
Um, I work at a university doing counseling and teaching. So uh, um, being a therapist has been a pretty significant part of my adult journey, all the self-awareness that that has taken and lots of my own personal therapy, um, trying to figure out how to be valuable to other people. Um, And, you know, drinking was, you know, I started like most people, I think drinking, most people I've heard, um, women I've heard on podcasts and stuff, just started drinking socially in my early 20s with colleagues and fellow college students. And, um, you know, there were some big nights, but it wasn't, um, I was a cigarette smoker too, and I felt like that was really what I got addicted to early on um, with cigarettes. And I, I started smoking when I was about 17. And so I quickly became like a pack a day smoker, which if people saw me, I think they'd be surprised because everybody, you know, you don't look like a smoker, but I was, I was really, really addicted to cigarettes. Um, but I started, so I, so I continued smoking into my early twenties and then in my early twenties, I began drinking. Um, and I liked it, you know, for the relaxation and the, and the, the friendship that it brought. I had been pretty socially anxious growing up. And so it was really fun to finally be an adult and like go out to a bar and get a couple pints of beer and just feel welcome in those environments. Um, But, you know, even when I wasn't with friends, I noticed, you know, again, in my early 20s, right around when I started graduate school and counseling that I really liked having beer in my fridge and so pretty early on, I liked having a beer a night, and it became a ritual. And I I know that red flags were already going off at that point because I didn't grow up around alcohol, and I just, you know, it was like, wow, I'm, I drink every day. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really impacting my quality of life that much that I could tell but I felt like I already had an attachment to it. And honestly, you know, over the next 15 years or so leading up to pretty recently, I, I've i been concerned and went through periods of telling myself not to worry. It's no big deal. Um, slowly one drink a night turned into two and more on the weekends. Um, but I never really went off the deep end. Like I don't have a bottoming out kind of story. Um, Even at the very end, the most that I think I ever drank on like a weeknight, and this was very rare that I would drink three drinks on a weeknight, um, but it it did happen. Um, You know, on the weekends, I would maybe drink four or five drinks. It was a lot. Certainly, it wasn't good for me, but nobody else was concerned Um, In fact, all the way up until the end, it was really hard for me to find validation from people in my actual life um, to tell me that, yeah, like, Sarah, you should stop drinking. Like, this isn't good for you. Um, And I can talk more about that later. But that's sort of an introduction to my my drinking life. It just kind of came on slowly and stuck around. And increased a little bit over time, I think, as my tolerance increased Um, and just got to a point where that's what I did every night is I went home and I had had a couple few drinks. 
And I so did it, that with my so it wasn't yeah. the volume of it that made you uneasy. Uh, what was it about those few? Well, you know, in some ways it was the volume, Jean, because the because I started reading and you know listening to podcasts and looking at some of the medical literature coming out about alcohol and women's health and and so I I guess the volume did concern me in, in the sense of I really wanted to be one of those people who could just drink a couple times a week. Um, and I, but I, I wasn't, I was, I was, I, if I was drinking, I was drinking every night. And so it was the volume, but it was also the need for it, mm-hmm. you know, and that, that I couldn't, um, I used to wake up in the morning and say, okay, I'm not going to drink today. Um, you know, I know this is a common story. I'm going to go to the gym tonight and, you know, five o'clock would roll around and I would text a friend, you want to grab a drink? And so it was also that it was just also the fact that drinking started to crowd out everything else that nice that I could do for myself. It really sort of became the thing that I wanted to do, even when I didn't want to do it. That sounds very familiar to me. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's just it's just a classic story. Um, yeah, I feel you know, like and I we get say, mental cataracts. You know, yeah. we get. It's like we it 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 becomes the only thing we can think of as a positive. Yeah, and what one of the things that has been extremely helpful for, for me this time this quit is that I've really been trying to recognize that you know it's the alcohol that causes the cataract, <laughs> like right. like al- alcohol itself kind of slipped into my life and. You know, earlier than I even realized, started to create a need for itself, and I've really been trying to understand my relationship to alcohol in some ways similar to how I eventually came to understand my cigarette addiction, which, which was that it, you know, it's an addictive drug, and I don't really need to beat myself up over getting caught by it, but I do need to take responsibility for leaving it behind. I'm really I'm glad you said that because I really I think this is the thing that's become clear to me as I talk week after week to peer, people and hear their stories is that we have we have no problem saying I don't smoke at all because smoking is bad for me but we feel like there has to be some like tangible reason not to drink aside from it being bad for us, like that that something has to happen that makes it impossible for it to be an option. And yet, like, of course nobody, like people don't casually smoke. Um, No. You're not encouraged to have a cigarette a day. That's okay to have a cigarette a day. Right, to smoke moderately. Right, there's no concept of smoking moderately or, you know, (laughs) using cocaine moderately. Like we teach our children, don't touch that stuff. Like it doesn't matter how healthy you are. If you use it repeatedly, it could hook you. And no one gave me that message about alcohol. Um, Yeah, and so really sort of depersonalizing this, that it's not, that's one reason I didn't connect so much with the AA models. I really don't see that I'm, you know, I've got all the normal human flaws, but I don't. I don't think that there's some fundamental defect in my character that that led me to this place. Um, I think it can catch anybody. And I look around at my friends, and I think they're, you know, 
they're caught too, whether they know it or not. Just like if someone's smoking, um, whether they are addicted or not, or think they're addicted or not, like the smoking's still not good for them. Um, so that's been that's been extremely liberating for me, is to say, hey, I quit smoking. I never looked back when I finally figured it out. I never looked back. I don't miss it. I got free from it, and I think what's so different with trying to break free from alcohol for me was that um, when I quit smoking, I felt like I I got away from this activity that's like really reviled and antisocial, you know, and I joined yeah, yeah. the herd, and everybody celebrated for me, even people who were still smoking celebrated for me, but with drinking... I really have had to leave the herd. And I know there's, you know, online communities and, you know, places like, like she recovers and stuff. I mean, there are communities where people don't drink, but all the people I'm, cl- like, genuinely close to in my life do. And so and so I I had to get comfortable with the idea that I'm really I'm really walking away from the herd on this one. Not on everything, but like people aren't going to throw me a party. Mhm, mhm. We're going to change that, though. Okay. Really yeah, we're slowly. Yeah, this, I'll throw we somebody are. else a party. By the way, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll be happy to throw someone else a party. Were you surprised to find the online support and the support that does exist? You walked away from one herd, but you did find another smaller, quieter, harder I to find I did, herd. and I follow them. <laughs> I follow them on Instagram, and, you know, I listen and stuff. But I also, I'm pretty introverted, and I get, you know, th- being a therapist takes takes a lot of energy. And so it's been interesting for me that, you know, the further I kind of walk walk out of that dark forest, I, I, and the clearer I get about it, like, in some ways, I, I feel like I need that a little bit less as the weeks go by, um, mm-hmm. that group identity. And that, that's been a big surprise for me. I know for a lot of people that's super important. Um, but I just, I'm just so glad that I can sit on the couch and drink a cup of tea in the silence, you know. Um, that, wasn't, that wasn't who I used to be. I'm a, I'm a big believer that recovery is essentially about recovering ourselves, that we're really just getting back to ourselves. And I don't know about you, but for me, a lot of my drinking was to escape myself, to escape, you know, things I didn't want to think about or things that I didn't like about myself or about the life that I had sort of set up for myself in terms of maybe trying to be too much of a people pleaser, too much other focused and recovery is all about being able to sit on the couch with yourself and a cup of tea and to lay your head on the pillow at night and not be afraid of what might come to your mind. And um, I mean, that is recovery. That's what it's all yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that I think that what was what was so frustrating about all of this was I was I was so good at holding those spaces for. I am. I'm really good at holding those spaces for other people. Um, my clients that I see for for therapy. Um, I'm really, I'm really good at holding those spaces and I'm even like, even good at holding those spaces for myself to a certain extent, even while I'm drinking, because that's always been a part of who I am. I started keeping a journal when I was five, you know, and like wrote multiple pages of process every day. (laughs) So I I kind of like arrived in the world as this pretty self-reflective 
person. I don't, <laughs> you know, pros and cons to that, by the way. But like, I, so it was. I think that in a way, I could get away with the drinking because I, I don't know. Like I had. It wasn't even so much that I was faking it. Like I had a certain amount of connection to myself even while it was happening. But I have been blown away at how much more has emerged without without the alcohol. And I think what I'm really grateful for is that without the alcohol, I actually mostly like what I'm finding. And that's that's not to say that there haven't been some real rough edges that have emerged, but my life isn't really in in shambles. It's like it's it's pretty it's pretty solid, and so it's allowed me to start to have energy to refine my reactivity and you know some of the things I struggle with. Uh, but it's freed up the space to do that now. I feel like I'm just rambling, so I'm gonna shut up and let you ask me some more questions. <laughs> no, rambling is good. Rambling is good radio. <laughs> well, I guess one question that comes to mind as you talk about you know, your job is holding space for others. And I'm wondering how that has changed for you um, in what you're learning about yourself now, or if it's changed. Um, changed in what's changed in what sense has being um, in recovery or um, even just quitting drinking, has that changed how you relate to your clients as a therapist? Yeah, I I think what I've what I've noticed and told my husband, you know, many times is it's easier now. Um I've always loved doing therapy, but uh I I feel more clarity when I sit with somebody else and I also I feel like I can challenge people a, a little a little bit more comfortably because you know, I'm not going home every night and letting myself off the hook. And so when when people when people bring up their um relationship with alcohol, uh, you know, I'm more inclined to encourage people to look at that. Um I mean, I I really I I work mostly with people who have experienced pretty significant trauma and so substance, you know, substance use for self-medication and calming the nervous system and numbing the nervous system is is real common with the folks that I work with. Um, But I'm just more willing to address that with them. Uh, I also sometimes let my clients know that I really can empathize with the addictive process and that, you know, a few of my clients know that I stopped drinking. And so I, I think when that feels like it might be useful to tell somebody. I've I've started to be open about that, um, but just in general, I think that that becoming a non-drinker has given me a clearer inner channel, and I, I don't know how else to put it. Um, but mm-hmm. that you know that definitely makes uh, sitting with people easier. That's like that's more really space. interesting. Yeah. I'm curious. Do you do you work um, in your role? Do you work with students and staff at the university that you're at? I get or? yeah. At the university, in my you know my job at the university, I see uh, college students for therapy, but I also have a private practice uh, where I see you know people who are older and at different life stages, individuals and, the, and couples. In your experience, 
do you experience a difference in how they people respond at different stages of life to you revealing that you have yourself given up alcohol? I think I'm probably more inclined, with, with a couple of exceptions, um, more inclined to talk to older people about it. Um, I think students are still really in an experimental phase, and they might not be so receptive to hearing about that. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I don't know that I would have been receptive to hearing about that at that age either. Um, so so I think I'm, I, you know, I, I really take it on a case-by-case basis, what, whatever I choose to share about myself with my clients, because I guess I just try to see if it, if it seems like it would foster a more meaningful connection between us. So it, I guess it just really depends um, on who it is. Now, I know for a fact that many of our listeners are therapists and that they struggle with feeling an extra layer of shame um, around being in sobriety, that somehow it's a discredit to their um, Like credibility? Their yeah. Mm. <laughs> Let's talk about that. What's your yeah. thoughts on that? Well, that was, I was, I've always been super envious of um, people like you or um, hip sobriety or um, Laura McCowan, is that how you pronounce her name? McCowan. Um, who, McCowan, okay. Who... You know, I know that I know that it's been really vulnerable for you all, um, but I have felt a lot of prohibition as a therapist um, to open up about this uh, because uh, because I think that even among my colleagues, it's drink drinking problems and alcohol uh, use is still the understanding of it is still pretty traditional. Like either you're a raging alcoholic and you need to be in rehab and AA or like come grab a pint of beer with us after work. Right. <laughs> like there's no like, um, and I, and so, yes, I would have loved to be blogging about this openly and writing about my process, but I have been really afraid of, um, really what my colleagues would think because there's still a lot of misunderstanding. Like most of them are not aware of this emerging paradigm uh, that you're part of and, you know, so many wonderful women are part of uh, that's like you can quit at any time and you you don't necessarily have to identify yourself with these deficit labels in the mm-hmm. process. Um, so I, I will have this couple thoughts in my many attempts to quit, um, I told one of my close friends at work who is a counselor that I, you know, had had quit drinking. And she said, um, I love her to death, but she said, oh, Sarah, you know, I feel bad for you. How are you ever going to have fun socializing again? So so my colleague who's a therapist said that to me. <laughs> okay. So so and then, you know, and one of my other attempts to quit, I told my therapist like 
who I love, who's really just the best therapist I've ever found. I told her, I think that drinking is making my life too small and it's getting in the way of my connection with myself. I really want to stop for good. And she leaned forward really gently and lovingly and said, you know, Sarah, sometimes a glass of wine is an act of (laughs) self-compassion. Really well intended. (laughs) Really well intended. Really, and of course, you know, in my drinking state or uncertainty about this, I took both of those comments to mean, you know, well, I guess I don't really have a problem. Why don't I go? Why don't I go and drink a lot of self compassion? But um, so I, I have been really, I have been really afraid that my my colleagues will misunderstand where this is coming from um, and will stigmatize me or label me or see me even just as a party pooper. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, I, I want to give you some feedback on that um, from a little bit farther down the road because I, I personally felt the exact same way, even though I'm you know, in a different profession. But I, I really felt the same way. And as time went on, um, I realized that I got to a point, well, especially when you're in early or when you're in contemplation stage of trying to decide to quit, I really realized that when I used to tell people I'm thinking about quitting or I'm deciding to quit, I wanted their affirmation. I wasn't telling them what I was going to do. I was asking them to support me in doing it, but I wasn't, I wasn't, if I had said, I need your support, and, you know, I wasn't using the words, I wasn't asking for what I needed. I was hoping that they would read between the lines and give me the support I wanted. After I had quit drinking and had really made that decision, and and instead when I revealed to people a choice that I'd made in my life, it was different. I didn't need their support anymore, and so what they said didn't matter. It didn't It didn't change. Right, because Sometimes you it, had that clarity. It wasn't negotiable exactly. anymore. Yeah. yeah, and also I wasn't asking a question veiled as a statement. I was... I was really making a statement, and and then in time I got even better at learning the language around it, and I'd sort of decide if I'm going to tell someone, you know, why I quit even, because sometimes I can just say, oh, I'm so much healthier, I feel so much better, and menopause is so much easier without it, <laughs> but more and more often now, well, yeah, you're not at that stage yet, but... Well, I just found out from the doctor I seem to be entering early menopause, but that's another subject. <laughs> keep, keep going. Well, I will tell you that that the alcohol can contribute to that too. Daily alcohol can really mess with your hormones, so yeah, uh, you'll feel a lot better in the long run for getting it out of your system. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to share that too. That as time goes on, um, it, even without thinking about it, you really realize that when you make a statement about not drinking, it truly is a statement without that disguised um, request for support in it. And that makes it easier to decide. You're still deciding if you want to share it with people or not. But, um, And I wanted to ask, too, about that feeling then of, because of these things that you just described, when you do reveal it to people, like you say, it makes it a deeper connection with clients. So it really doesn't undermine your credibility um, as a therapist. Is that true? I mean, I think that. I think that's a big big kind of ongoing debate in our profession is just how um, both both in sessions what we're what we're allowed to say and you know the the context in which we decide to share about ourselves in counseling sessions but also just 
you know, how much of ourselves we can put out there in the world, whether that's um, everything from Facebook to blogs or podcasts of our own, um, how much information about myself as a person, um, is it okay for my clients to come across, even if they're just Googling me, which they do, because um, they've told me, hey, I, I found you online, I saw that you wrote this, or I learned this about you online. And so, you know, I... I'm, you know, I'm careful about what I share in sessions because I don't want to make it about myself when I work with a client. I want to really give them the attention that they need. Um, but, but I, but I've really struggled because I'm a writer, and it's like, and I want to write about myself, and, and I want to put myself out there in the world as a fellow human being, not as an expert on this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's really been. Um, you know, I want to be like one of the people, um, because when I'm a therapist, I'm, I'm kind of, I am one of, but I'm also being looked to, to provide, you know, some kind of guidance and direction for people. And so it's, it's really beautiful for me to be able to write about like being a fellow traveler, um, I forget the question, but there, but there is this. I think that there's this ongoing debate of just how much of ourselves, our struggles, our humanity we can um, make known, even in public spaces that aren't about our clients, but that they could come across if they were looking. So tell me about your podcast and how that uh, lends itself to this discussion we're having now. Yeah, I started um, the Counselor as a Person podcast about a year ago to interview other therapists, mental health professionals, um, psychologists, about who they are as people, um, how they deal with um, this really unique profession, and really wanted to hear from them about who they are, because uh I hear often from the students that I train who are preparing to become counselors that they're really afraid to let to let people know them. You know, they're afraid of being found out, like that imposter syndrome. Like, gosh, if if people really find out how human I am, will that disqualify me from doing this work? And so I wanted to invite people on my show and have, you know, about an hour conversation with them, the length of a typical therapy session, and get them to open up about themselves so that we can start to really kind of break down that idea that counselors can't be people. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you're doing that because I think it doesn't serve anybody well to put a counselor or a therapist on a pedestal and think no. they're perfect and they're going to teach us to be perfect. I would I would much rather just learn from someone who's been through the mud that can kind of help me navigate my way through it. And and that's how um, I feel about it too. You know, I don't I don't want perfection in my therapist. Um I want them to understand what it's like to struggle. So what have you learned in doing this podcast as you've interviewed people and do you see a recurring theme? Is there a certain type of person that's drawn toward counseling as a profession? You know, I don't it's hard to generalize I, on on that one. I mean, I, I, certainly the types of people that are drawn to counseling seem different from the types of people that are drawn to engineering. 
but um <laughs> you know sorry to laugh but yeah <laughs> yeah no it's supposed to be funny um but what i think what was so fascinating in in starting that project was that i i invited you know most of the therapists that i that i know to come on the show and about half of them um, said an enthusiastic yes, and about half of them said hell no, and some wouldn't even look at me when they would see me in the hallway. Like they didn't respond <laughs> to my email, and they avoided eye contact. And it was, you know, I followed up with some of them, and I and I heard stories of, um, well, I'm just I'm just not an open person. I'm just very private. Which on one hand is fine. On the other hand, I don't know that I'd want to see that person for therapy. Um, but I, but I also heard, I'm afraid that if people really knew how I felt about about doing therapy on some days, or what's really hard for me about doing therapy, that they, you know, that I would lose credibility. Mm-hmm. So, so I think within the within the therapeutic world, there's really um, some people who really like having that expert role and don't want to be seen so much in their humanity. And others who are really eager for that and think that that's an important part of this. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. How can how can our uh, listeners find your podcast if they want to hear it? They are welcome to just – I'm on iTunes, believe it or not. Um, just Excellent. the counselor is a person. Um, I think I've got 10 episodes out, and I'm scheduled to record a couple more. Um, if anyone wants to come on the show, we can figure that out, too. But, um, yeah, I'm on iTunes, or they can just Google me, thecounselorisaperson.com. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, okay. and yeah. I will uh, I'll give my email address at the end of our interview today so that if someone wants to reach you, they can email me, and I'll forward it to you, and then you can That'd connect be great. that way. Yeah. I have a few more questions for you. Um, you mentioned that you had it took you numerous attempts to get alcohol-free before you uh, were able to be successful at it. Tell me about that and about what made the difference on this last time. Thank you. I I was hoping you would ask me this question. Um, Yeah, I think once I was exposed to Alan Carr's easy way to quit smoking back in my 20s, it was like that planted the seed. And so as I began to notice drinking was a concern, uh, and I learned that he had also written a book about the easy way to quit drinking. You know, I probably read that book for the first time when I was in my mid-20s, um, so well over a decade ago. And um, from then on, I would just go through phases where I'd say, this isn't good for me, I really need to stop. And I'd go, you know, a few days, a week or two. And, you know, what's interesting about for me about quitting drinking is that the first few days or couple of weeks the improvement is so obvious and immediate you know and i would i equate it to like walking away from a from a physically abusive partner like with bruises and injuries and in in those following days like without reintroducing injury they really clear up quickly and it's like oh wow like that bruise is fading and you know i'm, I'm sleeping better and um, i'm feeling so much better but then within a couple of weeks when the most obvious injuries fade it it and and the progress or the recovery process is is a bit slower um it was i was just like oh i guess i don't have a problem and i would go back to it 
And so in recent years, you know, I've definitely upped the amount of reading and listening um, and self-exploration I was doing around this. But but I was still in that same pattern. I didn't want to leave the party or leave the herd. And I... Um, and I also was really basing my sobriety on what was happening around me. So if I had a really bad week, that would be an excuse to drink again. Um, if I got bad news that, or if there was a party coming up and I'd been sober for a week or two, well, th- you know, I guess I'll just drink again and figure it out later. And so, I, I, again, like everything external that was happening – um, became kind of how I based whether I stayed sober or not. And what what's interesting is I, I actually have quit drinking. I quit drinking for good um, right after my husband and I moved in with um, his dad, uh, my father-in-law. We're building a house. And so um, the last four months we haven't had our home. We've been living with um, my husband Thomas's father and that's where I quit drinking for good. And there's alcohol in the house, and we've had um, some really bad news. Like I found out the reason we can't have children is because I'm in early menopause at 37. Um, we've been on vacations. We've had a lot of you know challenge not living in our own space. And I've stayed sober through all of it. And I think that the you know one of the biggest things that changed for me was realizing that some choices in my life are worth making regardless of what's happening around me. You know, that this has to be non-negotiable. I cannot make my sobriety dependent on anything that happens. Um, and I don't know why it took me so long to get that gene, um, but it's been so liberating. I mean, I open the fridge and there's beer. I, I've been, you know, to parties and I've been around it and it's, I haven't really wavered or felt very much temptation because I'm no longer, I'm just no longer basing it on what happens. Um, And I'm also getting comfortable with this idea of like, I'm, I'm walking away from the herd on this one and that's okay. You know, Mm -hmm. no one's going to punish me for that. I think I've said a million times to people that have reached out and have been struggling to moderate but it's easier to have none than some. Oh my god, yes. Truth? Oh my god, yes. <laughs> when I, whether I was drinking or not drinking as long as there was a slight question, like if the door was a little bit cracked in my in my head and my heart around it, it was it was all consuming. It was all consuming whether I was drinking that day or not. Yeah. And it's like no now the door's closed, it's barricaded. You know, there is a certain kind of hell behind that door, but I never have to go through it again. Like I never do. Mhm. Yeah. And that's freedom, right? That that It is. really is. And I mean, I, I maybe maybe somebody listening to this says, "Well, she only has 3 months," but I would say I've been chipping away at this for years, and the same thing happened for me when I when I quit smoking. Like I tried for years to stop and then finally it really clicked and I was you know I was free and so of course I'm hoping that's what's happening but it it really does feel different this time 
So would you credit it to being that shift in thinking then of that it's non-negotiable? Is that is that the yeah, difference Yeah, there's for you? like really three things. It's not it's non-negotiable, not dependent on anyone or anything else. Um, two, really seeing the drug alcohol as the problem rather than myself as the problem. Um, and you know, three, accepting that it's okay to walk away from the herd on this issue. Um, th- th- those three things have really been new insights and significantly helpful. Um, yeah. I like your perspective on that. I, I don't know that in all the conversations I've had that it's really been phrased that way, walking away from the herd. And I do think that the social pressure is enormous, and especially because a lot of us, are people pleasers and um, life is uncomfortable when you're a people pleaser and alcohol yes. is one of our comforts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, um, yeah. you know, it, which kind of takes me back to earlier you mentioned the concept of the AA character defect. And sometimes I feel like um, the 12-step program, which works really, really well for a lot of people, it often does. does at work at, it doesn't translate as well for people that are sort of earlier in the spectrum. If we think of alcohol dependency as a spectrum mm-hmm. and you're either at zero or, you know, all in kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, the farther you go into the spectrum, the fewer choices you have is the way I see it. And so something really rigid and that has a built-in herd mentality of AA, I mean, you're going to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. You're going to bond with those people. You're going to have a new Group you're gonna people, call you're gonna people. have a new yeah 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 and so but it all kind of when you peel it back to some of those ideas and character defect like figuring out what's wrong with you, it's not so much what's wrong with you it's what what where are you off track in your thinking that leads you to be so uncomfortable that you need to numb yourself all the time and so the the language they use is character defect and for those of us that are really languagey and picky about our words we we bristle at that perhaps but if i could phrase it another way i would say well okay what what's part of your makeup or what are some of your core beliefs that are contributing to life being uncomfortable for you. And so for me, that really came down to codependency and and being so other-focused that I was trying to build a version of my life that that would feel safe based on Mm -hmm. approval from the world. Mm -hmm. And and that was people-pleasing, you know. So that, in in those terms, you could call that my character defect or my character flaw. But um, language matters for some of us. And, And it's amazing how simple language can... Um, be a barrier for us and make it so we can't hear a kernel of truth that's being offered because the language makes it too specific or too um, uh, that puts us off in some way. Do you relate yeah. to that at all? I definitely do, and I think you know I I don't I've been to AA I I've given AA some some real time um, in the past and I think that there's there's wisdom there. But as a therapist, I spend so much time crafting language and really trying to um, work within each person's meaning-making system to help them. And so it felt super forced for me to inherit this like whole philosophical apparatus that didn't feel right to me. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. And I also really, I know that, you know, again, I want to be respectful that especially for maybe later stage drinkers, that structure is super helpful. But 
you know, I want to build a life for myself from here on out that isn't about the fact that I used to drink, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. like I yeah. know for some people that's their work in the world, and thank you, like thank you, Jean, because, you know, you've been a lifesaver for me. But, mm-hmm. But for me, I feel like my work is other work, and alcohol was just getting in my way. It was just slowing right. me down. And so I don't want to have to invest the time and energy that is beautifully freed up now that I'm not addicted to this drug anymore you know I don't want to have to use it um, going to meetings or you know following steps or procedures like I'm an artist you know I kind of am just more of a free free flow person and so it's just it doesn't fit for me and it feels like nobody made me do that when I finally quit smoking you know they just said welcome back good for you and like that's that's how I'm approaching this too it's like I'm not going to get a lot of people around me to do that for me, but that's how I feel about it on the inside. It's like, welcome back, Sarah. Welcome back to your life, girl. You know, you made it. Ah, So tell me how you maintain motivation then, because I think for a lot of people, the hanging on to where alcohol took them or rehashing of the lows of the lows is part of maintaining motivation. Um, when when there isn't yeah. a huge rock bottom, or if you're alcohol yeah. free by choice, is a is yeah. a term that I'm yeah. using a lot lately. Um, how do you maintain motivation when those well, obvious consequences were never there? Yeah, and I've had mo- I've had pangs like going over to the house that we're building, and I step out on the front porch that you know the builders are in- creating for us, and I think, oh, a bottle of wine or something like. So it's not that I haven't had pangs or romanticizing it in moments but but what i will say is that i i am choosing to see alcohol as the abuser in mm-hmm. in my relationship with it and so when i think about it as an abusive ex boyfriend for example it even if i were to say well i'm just going to go back to him you know one night and like maybe he'll beat me up or maybe he won't you know maybe he'll just kind of keep me up all night you know, saying mean things to me, you know, maybe, or, you know, like maybe it just like, he'll just like slap me around a little bit. He won't actually like really, really hurt me in a way that anyone else could see. If, If I really look at it that way, which I, you know, frankly think alcohol was abusive to me. I, I can stay really clear. And I, and I think that if there's a, if there's a danger for me, you know, which of course, it is, you know, challenging to stay quit at least in the early days. Like, if there's a danger for me, it's it would be if I kind of lost that um, frame of reference um, and started seeing alcohol as like, well, like like in the ex abusive ex example, which I've I've never been hit, but I've been in toxic relationships in the past, and and so. Anyway, if I go back because the the sex was kind of freaky and fun. You know, but it made me feel horrible about myself. That's not that's not the direction that I want my life to go in. So, so you're that helps me. Sober now. Mm-hmm. Tell me, talk, you, t- talking about the direction that you want mm-hmm. things to go in. What are some things you're looking forward to in the months and years to come? Being well, we are trying phase. to have children with the help of of, of science. Um, it seems like my eggs are probably. Um, on you know duds from here on out, but we're actually tomorrow 
going to consult with someone about getting an egg donor and doing IVF um, for pregnancy, or we're going to do adoption. We've got this, you know, our, our house that we that we created together, designed together, is being built. I've only been married for a couple of years now, um, year and a half actually. Um, so looking forward to growing my relationship with my husband and, you know, working on my podcast and trying to write a book about the counselor as a person. And um, I do paint. People can find my me um, online and find my paintings if they want to as well. So, I mean, I have a really rich life. Um, when I was trying to get sober, I used to hope I would get pregnant so I would be forced to be sober for nine months. And that was, you know, obviously a huge red flag. And it's really beautiful to get clear on this now. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I'm not I'm not asking for a little being to save me from myself. Um, so obviously, hopefully, motherhood's the next big you know step in my journey. Sober motherhood. That's so exciting. That's so exciting. I think scary um, but exciting. Yeah, scary and exciting. Well, I, being present as a parent and as a spouse is really terrifying and wonderful and I would say it's something I consistently hear from women especially in recovery is that they just feel that they are a better mom and a better parent and a better partner yeah because they're able to be in that moment and those moments go by so quickly yeah uh, it's really great not to surrender any of them to as you say to that abusive boyfriend that just is taking, taking, and mm-hmm. oh, well, that's all so, so very exciting. And I wonder then, um, in our last few minutes, if I could just ask you, if somebody's listening and they're in their first weeks, either you know, pre, pre, uh, wait, if they're in, let's say, the contemplation stage or in early stages of uh, sobriety, what words of encouragement do you have for for those folks that are listening? Oh, it's like all the same stuff that I hear people say um, and uh, that, you know, was encouraging but also annoying when I was trying to get sober. Like, <laughs> don't stop trying and you're you're worth it. Um, and it's it's really better out here. Like, it really it really is. That's not that's not just a lie that we're cooking up to to get people to to stop like um this is it's easier this way mm-hmm. it's easy it's hard to get out but it but you know it's it's easier when you're out um you know and if anyone wants to reach out to me to talk about it i you know i'd be happy to I'd be happy to chat um not that I'm an expert, but I've got lots of experience in the trenches. Well, that is so wonderful, and I will uh, offer the email address for the Bubble Hour. It's super simple. It's thebubblehour at gmail.com, and if you send a letter to um, that address I and note that you would like me to forward it to Sarah, I will send it right on to her. And also, you can look up the counselor as a person on iTunes and have a listen to Sarah's podcast, which I am definitely going to be doing as I walk my dog today because I just think it sounds so fascinating. And um, I'm really grateful for you for being here today. This has been a really great discussion. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, Jean. This was inspiring to me. I really appreciate what you do. Oh, thank you. I'm honored to do it. It is 
I I just was telling my mom today, you know, I've been five years of doing the bubble hour, and aside from being, uh, you know, my my business, my marriage, and my kids, that's the only other thing I've stuck with for five years besides sobriety. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've usually Those are things moved worth on. doing. Those are things <laughs> worth doing, though. Yes. So uh, obviously, there's I get a lot back from doing this because I get yes. to talk to people like you. So mm, thank you. Thank you Take so care. much for being mm-hmm. here. So stay on the line while I play the closing music. We'll say okay. goodbye offline. And okay, listeners, good. thank you so much for listening today, everyone. And until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud that that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame lies behind Oh, you think you're strong just cause you keep it on the side It's just safe and wait there Rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see Oh, I did Not proud that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.